0: Welcome to our Thought Leadership interview series. I'm Brandon Cooper, the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Ed DeMarco. Ed is the Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at the Risk Management Association. He has a proven track record of strategic corporate transactions, business development, and regulatory compliance while solving business problems and providing high-quality legal services. He's widely known and widely respected as a business partner who develops and executes a strategic plan while leveraging economic drivers to provide value. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Ed.
1: Thank you very much, Brennan. I'm pleased to be here with you today.
0: We're glad to have you as well. I have a lot of respect for the work the Risk Management Association does, and it's a real honor to have you here. Let's jump right in and talk about some of the you know, real hot topics that are out there right now. Cybersecurity, obviously, is is a very hot topic right now. And given your extensive background in cybersecurity,
1: what do you think financial
0: institutions should be doing at this time to protect their institution and their customers?
1: Well, well, two things come to mind. Uh, The first is regular employee training. So if you think about uh, what the largest risk to institutions uh, generally is in this space, it's their own employees, because the most common method of gaining access to an institution's systems is the garden variety phishing email. Uh, the other crucial thing that uh, that institutions need to do is have an active match, patch management program. So if you recall back in 2017, all of last year, uh, the WannaCry uh, ransomware attack, that exploited vulnerabilities in Windows that remained unpatched. So having an an active uh, patch management philosophy, that requires a firm to have a, a strong policy, uh, an up-to-date list of IT assets so that patches are deployed on a timely basis and importantly across all possible points of entry. So while this can be expensive and time-consuming, firms really need to have the support of senior management, the necessary resources and the buy-in of of, of their colleagues and other stakeholders to make patch management a a, a reality and uh, and really to safeguard uh, both the systems and more importantly the information that's residing on those systems.
0: It's really interesting. It certainly is a really hot topic. I mean, just uh, a few days back, um, the Department of Homeland Security had released uh, a, a press release talking about how dangerous uh, cybersecurity is, or how much of a national threat it is. Really, compared it to attacks on you know physical safety and and personal security. So, I, you know, I, I really do think it's it's a huge one. You know, moving off of cybersecurity just as a topic, um, let's talk a little bit about third-party risk management. From your perspective, how are financial institutions doing overall with third-party risk?
1: Well, third-party risk is, is probably the largest risk stripe under the broad category of operational risk other than cybersecurity. And as we see it, uh, institutions, particularly larger ones, have focused significant resources on third-party risk management. And they've developed very robust programs for risk assessment and ongoing monitoring. Um, importantly, they've also started to think holistically about the term, quote, third party, uh, as opposed to uh, just identifying uh, these, these firms as vendors. And in the, in the so-called third party category, uh, larger firms have identified a list of 19 categories and 52 subcategories of non-vendor relationships, uh, such as affinity relationships, joint marketing and co-branding alliances, correspondent banking relationships, and even like RMA, uh, professional and trade associations. Uh, they're all sort of uh, non-vendor third parties. And, and larger firms have also done a really good job, uh, in my view, of standardizing key contract terms uh, that they include in their contracts with third parties, which allows them to streamline the contracting process. With with one caveat. So while you have a lot of standardized legal terms, it's really important to remember that the the business needs trump uh, trump legal form. So that you have to think out uh, what the relationship is intended to do, what the service levels are going to be, and not try to impose terms that may be at odds with what the institution is uh, is trying to accomplish. Uh, the other thing I think that that uh, institutions are doing really well is uh, they've got strong board-level insight um, into the space, which I think is particularly important because of the uh, strategic risk and reputation risk that can be posed through third-party relationships.
0: Looking at that kind of on the, on the side a little bit, what do you see as being the biggest struggle out there for financial institutions as it pertains to third-party risk?
1: Well, you know, as I said, uh, larger firms have very robust programs, but I think that it, it's sort of a, a the flip side of that coin. It's the notion of boiling the ocean. And um, while a bank should have a a comprehensive and rigorous oversight and management of its third-party relationships, particularly those that involve uh, critical activities or significant bank functions, and think about payments, clearings, settlements, custody, um, or might involve significant shared services like IT, um, or could cover activities that could cause a bank to face significant risk if the third party fails to meet expectations or could have significant customer impacts. those are all important but I think what ends up happening is again this boiling the ocean concept of of scope creep. You have a a tendency to drive too many vendors and other third parties into your program. So whether that's based on spend um, or uh, number of touch points in the bank, if, if you're not really dealing with a critical activity an important shared service or customer information, having too many, too many third parties or other vendors in your program uh, can really bury the program under its own weight, where it becomes a check the box compliance exercise, rather than a really effective uh, risk assessment and monitoring uh, program. And remember, the key key thing here is the whole reason you, you outsource to a third party is because they can perform the product or deliver the service better, faster, cheaper than the institution can itself. So if your goal is to create a a high-functioning vendor risk management program, that's got to be based on ensuring that critical activities or significant shared services or customer-facing third parties deliver better, faster, and cheaper, and importantly, within the risk appetite of the institution.
0: One one of the things you just said really uh, hits home with me, and that is that uh, issue of scope creep and bringing in third parties that you don't need to necessarily actively manage and allowing them to kind of overwhelm and dominate uh your activity. And I and I I was freely I freely admit that I was guilty of that at one of my prior organizations where I did try to uh do literally just too much. Eventually we managed to ratchet it back and make sure that we were focusing obviously on in a risk based manner on the critical third parties and making sure the ones that are, that represent the highest risk uh to the institution the ones that we spend our time on.
1: Well, and, and that, really, that really is the key. Uh, we, we do a, a survey at RMA every year and we, uh, on third-party risk management. And when you take a look at the survey, some, uh, I guess, more than, uh, and this is of larger banks, more than 50% of the large banks have over uh, 1,500 uh, vendors in the critical stripe uh, in their program. And that seems like an awful lot of vendors, but the number doesn't fall off dramatically as uh, asset size declines. And, and that, that, I think, is indicative of, of scope creep and, and how you define criticality. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Besides managing the regulatory guidance closely, what the best practices are you seeing out there in, in managing risk?
1: Well, probably the most important best practice that we've seen evolve since the advent of um, the OCC's 2013 guidance is the movement from this being a procurement issue to a risk management issue. And I think that's an important lens, and I think heightened standards and enhanced prudential standards really played played a significant role in that. But the movement from procurement to risk management can't be overstated because the risk management lens allows firms to look across their third-party landscape or ecosystem, as others call it, to identify concentrations so that you can see where you've got the third party in multiple places throughout the firm and you might not have had those internal touch points. But it also allows a, a bank to understand the interplay between third party risk, BCP, and cyber risk. And if you don't understand those, you're doing independent, um, independent checking, if you will, but you're not really doing sort of the end-to-end process review that's important to make sure that you don't have an exposure uh, that's absent uh, uh, you know mitigating control. So I think it's, it's really important to have that, that lens. This is not just about purchasing, it's about the onward life cycle of, uh, of uh, the, the bank slash vendor relationship. And a bank's got to understand, you, you know, what happens if that vendor uh, were to fail uh, or get acquired by a firm that it doesn't want to do business with uh, or have technology, say, that gets outmoded. Um, or otherwise needs to replace the, the vendor. And you've got to think about all of these things in the context of not just third-party risk, but reputation risk, strategic risk, uh, BCP, cyber, et cetera. So it's, it's, I think that movement from procurement is probably the biggest thing, and it seems so simple, but you see a lot of firms have moved that up and into, uh, into operational risk.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, one, one of my big concerns uh, when you find it still sitting in a procurement function or an IT function, it, it tends to, you know, not address necessarily the risk component of, of it as much, but it becomes, you know, you're always in danger of kind of having that that favorite vendor always being protected or the one that's uh, – or it becomes a cosplay or it becomes – you know, somebody that we've always used, and you tend to underestimate the level of risk. So I, so I agree with you completely that you know moving it over to the operational risk area is certainly a, a best practice that we've seen over the past few years.
1: Right. Well, because that's the thing you don't want your you you don't want the technology to be the tail that wags the business model dog. And and when this becomes a pure procurement or IT issue, that that often is going to happen because the IT folks want to work with companies and technologies that they're very well versed with. Exactly
0: back to cybersecurity for a moment, do you think it's really a topic that day-to-day you really should be concerned with?
1: I, I do. I just, you know, I, if you think about it, you know, both cyber risk and third-party risk are the top two operational risks facing banks today. And frankly, I don't see that changing at any time in the foreseeable future because banks, their third parties, and their customers are increasingly dependent upon technology. And One of the things that I I personally think that firms would be well served in doing is purchasing cyber insurance and not necessarily for the coverage, although cyber insurance can fill the gap that exists in in existing insurance policies, Uh, you know, some might cover uh, general commercial liability, but they don't cover a cyber event or a phishing event and so forth. But really the important part of the exercise in, in getting cyber insurance, because it, it can really help you to uh as you go through the questionnaire from the the insurance firm, can help you obtain real insights on the state of your cyber preparedness, which can really be invaluable. And it could lead you to uh if you're doing tabletop exercises to refine them, it could lead you to dust off your uh your privacy notices, take another look at them and how you're handling. Uh, customer and other sensitive data. It can help you um, help you put together a, a plan or refine a plan to do a breach notification. And just in the last couple of months, uh, the 48th, 49th, and 50th states have uh, passed privacy uh, privacy laws. Now all 50 states have them. And if you're doing business, um, you know beyond the U.S. borders, you know you've got Canadian implications. Say if you're doing North American business or uh the uh, impact of the GDPR if you've got business happening in the European Union. So I think uh you know cyber insur- cyber is is a big issue, cyber insurance I think can can shine a lens on that and uh provides some nuance and it's a, it's a great way to have a discussion um not just with senior management but also with the board. And you know one of the things I understand about that is that uh, there are a lot of firms writing cyber insurance at the moment. Um, the number you know has really uh, grown exponentially over the last four or five years, but there's no single standard for the policies. Uh, so you've got to really understand the exclusions and limitations and so the policy is not a panacea for the loss, but I think the really important point here is to is the drill and what you learn in going about obtaining the insurance.
0: I. I wholeheartedly agree, and in fact, I was telling somebody that just the other day, that, uh, you know, it, it's impossible to kind of say, you know, this one-size-fits-all approach uh, to cyber insurance or to tell you what, you know, what, what level of insurance you need or that sort of thing. I said, but but going through the exercise will be quite informative as to, you know, your your cyber practices and how robust and, and how uh, compatible they really are. You know, I want to double back to something else you mentioned just a few minutes ago about um, you know, board involvement. Do you feel that risk management is getting enough attention right now from senior management and the board? And, and I guess the corollary to that question is, how can they better uh, demonstrate their level of involvement?
1: Well, I, I, I do think that the boards and, and senior management um, are, are giving are giving sufficient attention to uh, to risk management. And I think the key from the perspective of the board and senior management is that the risk management function needs to be proactive and forward-looking, that they've got to bring actual, actionable intelligence to the board. So if you if you think about your typical board package that can range from you know, 800, 900 pages to a, a couple of thousand pages, an awful lot of time is spent documenting static risks, which crowds out the opportunity for the board to focus on emerging risks and trends and really provide credible challenge uh, back to management, back to the risk function. So if, if actionable intelligence is given by risk to the board, uh, then the board can effectively provide its oversight function back to the bank uh, by asking uh, the right credible challenge questions by providing the appropriate resources, etc. And when we we talk about credible challenge, we don't mean that the board should be argumentative uh, with management or the risk function, but really that the board needs to be engaged in, engaged in determining the institution's risk appetite and so, sort of say in the context of third-party risk in defining strategy about what can be outsourced, to whom can it be outsourced, and really understanding the mitigation strategies uh, associated with critical activities outsourced to third parties, you know, what happens if uh, there's a significant outage that lasts for a period of time? How are you going to cope with that both operationally, but more importantly, from a reputational point of view? Because uh, when you look at, say, the Edelman Trust Barometer and you look at financial services, it's been very lowly ranked for the last decade. And it's very hard to rebuild your brand uh, when you've had a significant public failing. So I think giving that time and attention, I think, it's, it, is, is really important. Uh, the flip side, I think, from the uh, from the perspective of the risk function, um, and, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. Uh, on the one hand, the regulators are prodding uh, the function to uh, report and document more and more. And again, you create this boiling the ocean uh, issue of if you if you source up so much information to the board, regardless of whether you put it in appendixes or in charts or what have you, in graphs it's still a lot of information for somebody to digest and when you put so much information in front of a board member who's got a fiduciary duty to read it understand it etc and ask questions you get lost in the detail and i I think risk people need to really put actionable things what does the board need to know in order to discharge its obligation that really should be the lens that they look through Uh, and sometimes you need to push back with the regulators a little bit about what you report up and how much how much detail is reported up right. uh, to,
0: there's just yeah. so much that the board has to get through in in, in a typical board meeting and, and they're almost looking for it feels like daily active involvement of the board, which you know is almost an unreasonable standard to think about but uh, so I really did try to highlight you know here are the things I need your uh, eyes and ears to to help me discern better. Uh, when I would report to our, either our risk committee or audit committee or board and tried to get them, you know, actively involved and, and indicate even in the minutes that they were helping to set direction and that there was, you know, significant discussion of certain items. So uh, particularly as, if, if, if critical matters were happening that they needed to know about, I wanted to make sure that it, that it was clear that I, I was seeking out their uh, engaged feedback <laughs> You know, one final question uh, before we wrap up, and that is, do you see any uh, relief coming in the short term, not in terms of general regulatory relief, but will any of the proposed regulatory reform that's out there right now trickle down to offer a break to the weary compliance officers as it pertains to risk management?
1: I I just don't see that in in the short term. Um, From my perspective, so much of what has driven the regulatory focus since the crisis is based in statute. So, for example, the formation of the CFPB, um, it takes new legislation to drive any meaningful change and that takes not only time but political will. So again, taking the CFPB, for example, uh, the Choice Act uh, would have restructured the CFPB as a commission and while the Choice Act was passed by the House last year, it appears dead on arrival in the Senate, which has been focused on the Crapo bill, and importantly, the CREPEL bill provides regulatory relief, uh, but what it doesn't do is address the CFPB. So to the extent that firms were looking uh, for relief from that perspective, uh, you've got a lot of political things going on at the moment um, with acting director Mulvaney in that seat, uh, but the uh, the bureau is gonna remain structured as a as an independent agency led by a single person and uh it's not going to have the the uh you know sort of the balance if you will that a three or five person commission would
0: right i i, I agree with you on that any final thoughts before we wrap up
1: well i i think that the sort of final thoughts i think you know prudent risk management is it, it, it's really an important uh function or component of every bank um and it it can really drive um Drive your risk appetite. But more importantly, I think it it helps to set the right culture for the firm. And you know, we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of different issues manifest themselves in the press uh, in recent years. And um, yeah, I think if you've got the right risk management culture, uh, that that's not just good, you know, from a compliance or risk point of view, but it's good business.
0: Absolutely, and I've often said that you know, a well a well-run third-party risk management program goes well beyond just the risk function. It also can help, you know, drive drive some profit as well. I mean, you can do champion challenger strategies out of it. You can look for quality uh, play. You can say, you know, which of these is the better long-term vendor to be doing business with. So I totally agree. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot that you can do uh, to make the risk management function both visible and somewhat profitable to the organization, I hope. Well, Ed, Ed, I really appreciate the time, and uh, thank you so much for joining in this session. To everybody listening in, uh, please be on the lookout for future interviews in this series. Thanks, everyone.